Exodus 6, verses 1 through 13. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, a land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from the slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for your possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Well, it is good to be back up here this morning. Um, I will tell you that of all the things that I do as a pastor, uh, this is actually the thing that I enjoy the most, which I know sounds crazy probably to a lot of you, but you sort of get used to it and then, you know, you love it. Um, And so it's fun, but it's good for me to be able to set it aside and take the time that I would otherwise spend preparing messages and and getting up and doing this and to do other things. And I want to give you a couple of examples as to why I think that's the case. We are in the midst of a building program, which by the way, if you have not peeked over the fence back here, there are actual walls going up back there, guys. So that is a pretty amazing thing. Um, Yeah, I mean, that's awesome. Really exciting, really exciting. But what is the point of all that? I mean, why would you do that? It's expensive, it's tiring, it's a huge, enormous effort. What's the point? Well, the point is to create a more effective platform as a church and school for mission to the city. So, because I'm able to take these duties and at times place them into really capable hands, other people on our staff... I was able with Matt to go and to check out a program called Alpha, which you'll be hearing a lot more in the weeks and months and even years to come. But the bottom line of it is, we really think that it's going to be part of the heart and soul of that outreach to the city, of the church planning we've talked about, about all of these different things. It was kind of an important use of time. We're also highly involved here as a church in a movement here in Broward County called Church United. And if you don't know what that is, it's a collection of about 150 churches and counting now who don't agree on everything, but they agree on mission to the city together in the name of Jesus. And it is one of the most exciting things, probably the most exciting thing happening, spiritually speaking, at least in my opinion, in South Florida. It's absolutely amazing. And on behalf of Rio, I devote a lot of time to that, in part because I'm able to take these duties and the time that I would otherwise spend doing this and and give it to really capable people. And by the way, I think it is good, spiritually speaking, for you to hear from these other really capable people. I do, and I I say that because 
they're different from me. Not only are they significantly younger in some cases than me, but in addition to that, they're just different people. They've been formed through different experiences, raised in different families, hurt in different ways, healed in different ways. They have different personalities and passions and peculiarities. And so it's good for you to hear a diversity of voice. It's a good thing. And it's good for you guys, I think, as well, to realize that this is not a church or a ministry that we're building on a person or a personality, or in Matt and I's case, maybe a couple of personalities, because we're, you know, like frickin' frack, you know, we're just, we're, amazing. I mean, we're, we're a team for sure. But really, I, I think that it's helpful for you to realize that if Matt and I stepped off the same curb at the same time and got hit by the same bus, you know, I mean, I'd hope you'd miss us. I honestly would, but... But really, I mean, it would be okay. Why? It's not about us. And God is building a great team. And lastly, it's good for those guys and it's good for the kingdom. And the reason I say that is as I look around the city, and I've been here a long time now, I can see pastor after pastor after pastor of churches that have come out of this ministry in part because we take seriously the sacred duty of helping them develop their gifts for whatever it is that God calls them to go off and do. I mean, I'd love to keep them all, but I've been around long enough to know that's not going to happen. And it is good for the kingdom that they have the opportunity to get up and to do what I'm doing now. It's really, really good. So with all that said, it's good that I can set it aside, but it's, it's fun to take it back up again, and particularly in this series. So I love the book of Exodus. I'm excited about continuing this story. And, and here's the deal. If you've been with us in this study, then you know where we're at in the story. But if you have just shown up today, you have no idea where we're at in the story. And if you don't know the big picture of the story, even having heard the passage of Scripture that Julia read that we're then going to look at here in a few minutes probably doesn't help you all that much. So let me give you the big picture. The Exodus is the story of how God, through a deliverer named Moses, delivered his people, the people of Israel, from bondage and slavery to Pharaoh in the land of Egypt, how he then led them through a wilderness. And then if you just keep reading through the Bible, how he gave to them a promised land, a land full of abundance, a land that is sweet, a land that is free, a land that is actually and authentically theirs. And the reason that this is actually meaningful and valuable to us today, so many thousands of years later, is because, as we've been saying all along, that's not just their story. It's my story. If you're a Christian, it's your story. If you become a Christian, it will be your story, and it's what that story calls you to do, incidentally. And why do I say that? Because the Christian gospel is that there actually is a God. He really exists. And He is the supreme being, the supreme value, the ultimate good in the whole of the universe. And by the way, how could that be otherwise? And that He has created absolutely everything and everyone for the single most dignified, the most ennobling, the most amazing purpose ever, which is to take our lives and to live them entirely, because that's what He deserves for Him. Would you rather live for something less, but that we have all lived for lesser things, starting with ourselves, and then go to other people, and then this whole other list of idols. We have all of us done it, and in the doing of it, in the false worship, if you will, we have found ourselves in bondage and in slavery to, to, to sin and to, to guilt and to shame and, and, and to all of these things, all the wounds that we've inflicted on ourselves, all the wounds that have been inflicted upon us, all the wounds that we've inflicted upon other people. There's just no undoing this. We're enslaved. 
even to death itself. But what is the Christian gospel? It is that that God so loved that he sent a a redeemer, a deliverer, the true Moses. His name is Jesus, who by his life and sufferings, by his death and burial, by his resurrection, frees us from our bondage, faithfully by his spirit and through his word and with his people, leads us through the wilderness of this life. And I'm sorry, but that's what this life is. There are oases in this life and they are wonderful and amazing. And I love the oases. I like to hang out there as long as I possibly can. But nevertheless, it's a life that ends in death, not to be overly morbid, but just kind of keeping it real. But then what? What is our eternal end for those of us who belong to this deliverer? It is the eternal promised land. You want to talk about abundance and freedom and joy. It's amazing. So as we come to this story that we find in the book of Exodus, we come to it not just with an eye on Moses and the Israelites, but again, we come to it with an eye on Jesus and on us. And as we return to the story today, we come to chapter six, where we find Moses in the midst of great doubt, which is, if you've been with us, is absolutely unbelievable. Here's why I say that, because by this point in the narrative, here's a list of things that God has already done for Moses. So he has already, literally, visibly, physically in some sense, appeared to Moses in the burning bush. And that's kind of cool. He has audibly spoken to Moses and called Moses to go to Egypt and to deliver his people and lead them through the wilderness and and then to the promised land, okay? He's seen and heard God. He has given Moses the ability to do miraculous things. I mean, wow. And then on top of that, he has laid out this mission in such a way as he's told Moses everything that's coming. Okay, so you're going to do this, and then this is going to happen, and and then you're going to do this, and then this is going to happen, and then this is going to happen. He lays the whole thing out for him. It's absolutely amazing. And God has been 100% accurate in all of those things. He said to Moses, look, when you come wandering up out of the desert, not having been in Egypt for 40 years, oh, last time you were there, you were rejected by the Israelites and by the Egyptians and you walk up 80 years old in your shepherd's garb and you tell the elders of Israel that I God appeared to you and that you are my appointed deliverer contrary to every possible expectation they're actually going to believe you and that's exactly what happened and then he said and here's the deal Pharaoh's going to let you go eventually fact is you'll hear he's going to compel you to leave (laughs) but Not initially, because I, God, am going to harden the heart of Pharaoh. I have power over the heart of the most powerful man in the world, and I'm going to harden his heart against you, Moses, and I'm going to harden his heart against the people of Israel, Moses, and the reason that I'm going to do this is because that is going to give me the opportunity that I am looking for to manifest my glory and my power, not only over Pharaoh, who was himself worshipped as a god, but over the entire pantheon of Egyptian gods that my people have been subjected to for four hundred years. As they see me defeat, God upon God upon God upon God upon God, by the time that they leave and you lead them out of the land of Egypt, there is not going to be any question in their minds as to who the true and the living God is. And that's what's happened thus far too, at least in terms, as we saw last week, Moses went to Pharaoh and said, for the first time, let my people go. And Pharaoh said, yeah, I think I'm going to take a pass on that. You know, that just, that sounds like a bad idea. So I'm not going to do that, Moses. And just for asking, 
I'm going to increase the labor that I require of them. So their quota of bricks is this per day. Okay, but we've been giving you the straw. And now we're not going to give you the straw. Same quota. And the Israelites freaked out. And the foreman of the labor force of Israel kind of did a, you know, end around Moses. And they went to go talk to Pharaoh themselves to see, really, in their opinion, if they could undo the damage that Moses had done. And they said, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, you don't understand. Like, we can't make this many bricks without the straw. Like, if we have to get the straw, you know, you got to drop the quota. And he said, no, I think that you guys are the ones who don't understand. So here's the deal. You need to make this many bricks, no straw. Any questions? Go do it. And poor Moses is standing out in the hallway waiting to see how the meeting goes. And it didn't go so well. And these guys come out and they let Moses have it. Hey man, you just need to keep your mouth shut. Like nothing is going well for us since you showed up. Oh, thanks for helping us, Moses. Here's the only thing you've succeeded in doing. All you've succeeded in do, to do is to put a sword into the hand of Pharaoh with which he is now going to kill all of us. So thank you very much. Why don't you just go back out into the wilderness from whence you came? We don't need you. And here's the deal. Instead, in that moment of Moses going, my goodness, this is happening exactly the way the Lord said that it would. God has charge over the heart of Pharaoh. He hardened his heart. All of this stuff is played out. Lord, this is amazing. High five. What do you want to do next? Because clearly I have nothing to fear. You have total control over this. Well, instead, Moses doubts. This is where we left off last week, Exodus 5, verses 22 and 23. It says, Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all, which again is unbelievable since God said this is how it's going to happen. But it's perfectly believable. Why? Because as Sam talked about, I thought brilliantly last week, Moses was a real person. And I'm a real person. And you are all real persons. If you're not, just don't tell anybody, okay? We don't want to know, all right? We're just going to assume you are. So everybody's a real person. What is true of real people, particularly when life doesn't go the way we'd like for it to? We're hurt. We're bitter. We become resentful. We get all kind of negative. We create a caricature of God that is not accurate in terms of who He really is. And we look at that God and we doubt. We doubt the Lord. So here's the question that we're going to ask as we now enter into chapter 6. The question is, okay, well, what do we do when, like Moses, we find ourselves in a moment of doubt? And I'll give you the answer just to save you the suspense. The answer is we focus on God, meaning on who God really is, not on the caricature that we've created out of our heart. Who God really is. And He hasn't left us wanting for information. Like He's given us a Bible and He's given us Jesus and He's given us His Spirit and He's brought along His people. We focus on who God really is. And then out of that, on what He has promised to do for us. And it's pretty remarkable. 
So we pick up our study in Exodus 6, beginning in verse 1, where we read this. It says, The Lord said to Moses in response to his great doubt, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For after I'm done with him, is the idea, far from trying to keep the people of Israel in his land, with a strong hand, Pharaoh will actually send the people of Israel out of his land. And in fact, with a strong hand, Pharaoh will compel them to leave. He will drive them out of his land. So now, what is God doing? He's once again saying, Moses, let me tell you what's going to happen next. It's going to play out well just like this which is awesome, (laughs) except Moses, as we'll see, continues to doubt. He continues not to believe. So then what does the Lord do? Because I I think it's important. What does he do? Here's what he doesn't do. He doesn't say, Moses, like, what do I need to do for you, man? Like, seriously, what, what do I need to do to win your trust? What do I have to do to get you to believe that what I say is actually true, that the way I spell things out is actually what's going to happen? Like, I've appeared to you, I've spoken audibly to you, I've given you miraculous abilities, I've been right 100% accurate on everything that I've predicted thus far. What do I need to do? Do I need to raise somebody from the dead? Would that be enough for you? Okay, here's the answer to that. No. Why can I say that? Because that's what he's done for us and we still doubt. Listen, God met with Moses in a burning bush. What what has the Lord done for us? Almighty God, the invisible God, through a supernatural conception is conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary through which he takes on our humanity and is born into the world as one of us. Talk about someone you can see and 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 touch and and feel and hug and listen to and that's that beats the burning bush big time and then what did he do he lived the life that we have not and suffered and died in our place it was a thorn bush that was on fire he wore a crown of thorns Fire is an emblem of judgment. He took judgment for for who? No, certainly not for him. But for all who claim him. Suffered and died, buried. And then the author of life, as he said that he would, was raised again from the dead on the third day. Which I know sounds completely nuts. But I would ask you, have you ever looked into it? Have you ever actually studied the evidence? I mean, it sounds so crazy. Most people just write it off. Oh, that's just bizarre. Like it... Have you studied the evidence? Because when you do, the experience of most is that they find it harder to believe that he was not raised than that he was. Crazy as that sounds. But here's the deal. Jesus is risen. And I still doubt at times. I can totally relate to Moses. And I don't think I'm alone. So then what does Moses, or what does God do for Moses, and for that matter us, in our doubt? He reveals who he is. He's saying, Moses, don't forget. And he makes a series of sacred promises. Then God spoke to Moses, and he said, I am. Now why is that significant? Because that's the name that he gave to Moses at the burning bush. Moses said, look, when I get there, and the Israelites go, you're the guy? Really? What is the name of this God? And by the way, I mean, what God is able to deliver us from Pharaoh, king of Egypt? God says, perfect. Just give him my name. It's I am. It kind of works. So anyway, God spoke to Moses and he said, I am, to which he adds the Lord. It's the name Yahweh, 
which is God's active name, God's present name, God's rescuing name, God's saving name, God's redeeming name, and not just to Moses and the Israelites. It's his memorial name to all generations, including our own. He says, I'm the God who appeared to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with those guys, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the fathers of this nation of Israel that's now enslaved in Egypt. And what did I covenant to do? I established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan. That's the promised land, guys. The land in which they, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, lived as sojourners, not as possessors. Moreover, he says, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves. And I have remembered my covenant to give them this land, which does not mean that God is forgetful. It doesn't mean he went, wow, you know, I haven't thought about that in 400 years, and now's the time. It means that now's the time to fulfill it. And now God makes seven promises He says, Moses, say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know, the idea being through the experience of this great deliverance that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and I will give it to you so that you can live there as sojourners? No, for a possession. For I am the Lord. Which was an awesome moment, I'm sure. And so you say, well, that's great for them. (laughs) You know, happy for them. That's wonderful. But what about me? In other words, Tom, you said don't just keep your eye on Moses and the Egyptians, but on Jesus and on us. And so then how do I come to know God Almighty as my present, active, rescuing, saving, redeeming Lord? And the answer to that is through the experience of the deliverance that is mine and that is yours by faith in the true Moses who is Jesus Christ, who, you know, seven times in the New Testament and in the Gospel of John alone comes to me and comes to you and says, hey, um, come with me for a minute. You know, and like he, he takes us out to the burning bush. And at the burning bush, he lays claim to the I am name of God. He attaches it to a biblical image of life. And he says to us through these statements, here's who I am. And in who he is, there are all kinds of promises. He says, I am the bread of life. What in the world does that mean? I mean, like, what is he saying? He's coming to us as our creator. And he's saying, let me tell you something that I, who created your soul, know about you. I know that you are empty. And I know that you want to be full, and and, and I know that you're trying to fill yourself with all the breads of this world. And so, you know, you go to the bread of success for at least a bit, and you think, if I can just get enough of that, I can be full. But here's the problem with the breads of this world. You, You go to bed full, and then you wake up hungrier than you were the previous day. So now you need more of it. Okay, I need more success. Okay, oh, I'm full. Good grief, get me a Tums. Okay, then I go to bed and then I wake up. I'm hungrier than I were the previous day. Oh my goodness, I'm stuffing myself with success. 
I'm full for a few minutes, maybe a few hours for a night. Then I'm hungrier than I was the day before. It's insatiable. It's the same with sex. It's the same with popularity. I mean, you name it. Whatever it is. Jesus is coming and saying, let me save you some time on this one. So here's the deal. I made your soul in such a way as to only be capable of being made full by me. He's saying, I'm your answer. I'm the bread of life. But here's what doubt causes us to do, particularly when we're unhappy with the Lord. It causes us to go, I think, I heard what you said, but I think I'm going to try to eat some of this instead. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. What does light do? I mean, just very practically. It, it allows you to see. Doesn't it? Turn it off. You're blind. Turn it on. Voila. There you all are. It's remarkable. It's an amazing thing. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, listen, I can guide you. I can lead you. I can light up the right paths for you in life. But here's what happens. We look at the paths that he lights up for us in life. And they look kind of odd, like they look kind of scary. They look a little bit dangerous. They look very different from the paths that everyone else is on, even though maybe those paths aren't working. And we doubt and we think to ourselves, eh, I think I'll take this path over here. And we wander off into the darkness and we end up battered and bruised and, you know, in some kind of a ditch. And why? Because we didn't see it coming. It's what happens when you're in the dark. Jesus says, I am the door. And here's what doors do all throughout the Bible. They provide safety and security. They separate destruction and death on the one hand from deliverance and life. And he's saying, listen, to be in me is to be safe. Eternally safe with God, yes. But, but it's our only true security in life. And yet, we look at that and we say, yeah, but I think I'm going to trust in this over here. And we end up less secure, not more. I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm the one who swallows up death with life, meaning all kinds of death, hopes, dreams, ambitions, relationships, marriages, physical death in the end. And doubt comes along. And what does doubt cause us to do? To despair over the people and things that we have lost. And to live our lives as if there is no hope. When we're called to live with hope, because of Jesus, I am the way and the truth and the life. I'm the one who by my life sufferings, death, burial, and resurrection has purchased for you the favor of Almighty God. He sings over you because of my, Jesus, performance on your behalf. And I give to you that favor as a free gift. And God, His favor rests on you no matter who you are and what you've done through faith in me. And yet the evil one comes and we're so inclined to listen because we have very real failures. And we wallow in our failures. And we're riddled with feelings of unworthiness that Christ died to set us free from. I'm the true vine. I'm the sole source of life. And yet doubt calls us to look for life elsewhere. And what do we find? Because it isn't life. And then finally, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I'm the one who makes you to lie down in green pastures. I'm the one who leads you beside quiet waters. I am the one who restores your soul. Like, you can't get that at Walgreens, guys. I mean, you know, like, He restores your soul. 
but we're a lot like real sheep. And we wander off, don't we? And what does he do? Does he go, ah, good grief. What do I have to do to prove myself to you guys? I mean, I did the whole resurrection thing for you for crying out loud. Like, what else is there? You know what, if you want to go live, knock yourself out. You do it your way. It's not what he's like. It's not what he does. I think in moments like this, he calls us back to all that he is and to all that he's promised us. And here's what that should do. When we doubt, it should strengthen our faith in these seasons of doubt. And when is it that we doubt? Like, when do these seasons strike? It's when we forget that our Lord has also told us what's coming in life. Now, not in the kind of detail that he gave to Moses, but at least generally speaking. And when we forget what he has said that we'll experience in this world that is broken by us, then we're surprised by suffering. And we're surprised by failure, and we're surprised by hurt, and we're surprised by cancer, and we're surprised by deaths of all kinds. It, like, it catches us off guard, and we're like, good grief, I didn't, you know. And yeah, of course, maybe you didn't see it coming. But, but what does the Lord say? In John 16, verse 33, he says, in this world you will have what? Comfort, ease, prosperity? No. Now, you might, and those are wonderful oases, in the wilderness and enjoy them. It's awesome. But he says, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart. Why can we take heart? Even in this world. Because I have overcome the world and after I faithfully lead you through it, I will give you one that is entirely unbroken for forever. So, in the story of the Exodus, according to the predetermined plan of God so that God can get the glory, God hardens Pharaoh's heart and Pharaoh says, nah, I'm not going to let you guys go. That's ridiculous. We're going to up your work order here. That's what's actually going to happen. Then instead of high-fiving God and saying, well, Lord, clearly you've got it all under control here. What do you want me to do next? I'm really excited. Moses doubts God. And what does God do? He tells Moses who he is and he makes him a series of promises. And then in verse 9, we're told that Moses spoke thus, meaning he spoke these promises and words to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So what does God do? He says, you know what, Moses, let's just get a different people in here. We'll just change these guys out. It's not what he does. It's amazing how patient and understanding the Lord is. It's incredible how He condescends to our weakness. My goodness, Almighty God became a man who was pinned to a cross. That's slavery for you. That's remarkable. So the Lord said to Moses, go in. We're just going to press on, buddy. And tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. What that means is I'm incompetent. I'm incapable. I, we had this conversation before we even got into this mission. I'm not a good public speaker. I'm not very persuasive. All the same stuff he said in the past, but the Lord just pushes through. He spoke to Moses and to Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Why? Because ultimately it wasn't about Moses' abilities or inabilities. It's not about mine or yours either. 
It was about who the Lord is, who He really is, and what He has promised, and His great and unlimited ability to fulfill every single one of His promises, which is what He does 100% of the time. So, what do we do when we find ourselves in doubt? We focus on who God really is, not the caricature we've made, and on what He promises. So with that, I'm going to close with this, okay? How are you doubting the Lord right now? And you can just run through the list. Is He my bread of life? I mean, is He really? Is He the light of my world? Is He what I'm trusting for safety, the door for me? Is He the resurrection and the life? Or am I living in despair and hopelessness? Is He the way, the truth, and the life for me? He's the one who's purchased God's favor for me? Or am I, you know, just utterly unworthy and I just can't get out from under that pile? Is He your true vine, the source of life, and your good shepherd? So how are you doubting the Lord right now? And then secondly, will you turn from your doubt to come back to Him? Because as the good shepherd, we know what He does. Jesus tells us in Luke 15. He says the good shepherd leaves the 99 sheep that are safe within the sheepfold and he goes out into the world to look for the lost sheep. And it says this in the story, he searches for them until he finds them. However long that takes. So, how are you doubting the Lord? And will you turn from your doubt? and come back to Him. Okay? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You that You have not given us a book of myths and fables. We thank You, God, that You have not given us a book even full of real stories, but that we can't relate to. We thank You that You have given us a book that by Your Spirit You open up for us, explain to us, God, that we can totally relate to. We thank you for this man, Moses, who though he's heroic in so many ways, is just like us in so many ways. I'm more thankful for those ways than the heroism. And God, I pray that you would speak to our hearts graciously, for we are weak and downtrodden. That you would condescend to our weaknesses and meet us there with your love. We thank you that we have a Savior who seeks us out until he finds us. And I pray, Lord, by faith that we would be found by you today in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we come to the table uh, today, if you're a Christian, before you come to the table, like we're not in a hurry, guys, so um, before you come to the table, uh, I would encourage you to just work through that list, you know, bread of life, light of the world door, resurrection and the life, way the truth and the life. You know, is He your good shepherd? Is He your true vine? Is He really? And do business with Him in that regard. You know, turn from whatever else it might be and turn toward the one who calls you to Himself and who does that in love and in grace. And then having it done that, come forward and receive with joy the emblems of your salvation, the bread that represents the body broken, the, bl- the wine or the juice really, that represents the blood spilled for you. And feel the relief of that. That's a wonderful thing. But if you're not a believer in Jesus yet, 
I would encourage you not to come to the table, but to take this time to spend thinking about this stuff. You know, am I empty? Am I in darkness? Am I in need of the kinds of things that Jesus is and that Jesus provides? And then after the service is over, we have a prayer team. You know, just grab one of us or one of our prayer team. We're not going to have an answer to all your questions, I will tell you that. But we'd probably answer a few. You know, we've thought about it a bit. Uh, And we can pray for you and, and try to answer your questions as best we can, okay? All right, so the Apostle Paul says this. He says, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. So let's pray and then you can come forward. Father, we thank you for the one who has made this table available to us. We praise you, God, for the perfect life that he lived and for the sinner's death that he died for us. We thank you that there is life that comes out of the death of Jesus for all those who bring their life and deposit it at his feet. And I pray, Lord, now that we would find you in this meal and know your goodness and grace. In Jesus' name, amen.